This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I am honored to be speaking with Rob Gordon. Robert L. Gordon III has extensive senior management and cross-sector experience in the military, government, high-tech, and nonprofit sectors. He is currently the Chief Growth Officer of SBG Technology Solutions, leading SBG's growth and strategy portfolio to expand capabilities in national security and health among SBG government clientele. Rob earned his Bachelor of Science from the United States Military Academy at West Point and an MPA from Princeton University, where he specialized in national health policy. As a White House Fellow from 1992 to 1993, Rob served as a Special Assistant to the Secretary of Veteran Affairs and was the Director of Special Operations Office of National Service in the White House. In 2010, Rob was appointed the Deputy Undersecretary of Defense for Military Community and Family Policy in the Obama administration, where Rob is responsible for defense-wide policy, program execution, and oversight of more than $20 billion of the Department of Defense's worldwide community and family programs and initiatives affecting over 4 million military active duty service and family members and 2 million retirees. Rob also led the effort to revitalize 160 public schools on U.S.-based military installations, a $900 million initiative. For his Pentagon service, Rob is awarded the Secretary of Defense Medal for Outstanding Public Service. He's an advisor to several technology startups and is on the Advisory Council of Princeton University School for Public and International Affairs. Among Rob's many awards and recognitions, he is the recipient of the Bernard Gill Urban Service Learning Leadership Award from the National Youth Leadership Council, Princeton University's Edward P. Bullard Distinguished Alumnus Award, two awards of the Honorable Order of St. Barbara, and the Franklin Award by the National Conference on Citizenship. Hi, Rob. Hi, Deb. So, Rob, you were born in Richmond, Virginia, and you spent a lot of your childhood then abroad, living in Taiwan and Germany, as well as across vastly different spaces in the U.S. You've traveled all over the world. How has this globalized life experience impacted the way that you understand and the way you think about your your worldview and your work? Yeah, so fortunate. You know, I've been over to, to over 40 countries across the world. And as you said, just lived internationally in Asia and Europe and all over the United States. I actually went to three high schools altogether. You know, started off in high school in Germany, shortly a high school in Colorado Springs, and ended up in another high school, actually, in, in Colorado Springs. You know, I've been exposed to so much. I would say, you know, as I, I, I think about this, I hark back to Abraham Maslow. You know, Maslow's hierarchy of need. And I think probably a lot of your audience is familiar with this whole notion of human motivation and what motivates us to do what we do. You know, clearly at that lower rung, he talked about we need food, we need warmth, you know, we need security and safety. And higher up in the rung is this notion of love, friends, family, intimacy, and community. I will tell you, living in all of those places, whether it was in Tianmu Village in Taiwan or Bamberg, 
Germany or Frankfurt, what I learned common to humanity was this notion of togetherness. When I was young, literally, I was like eight or nine years old, I'd steal away to a village in Taiwan and just observe life. And it's, I think, singularly, if I could bring anything to this conversation, especially when we talk about technology, humanity, humans among humans, with humans, connected to humans, is one of the biggest staples of life for our species on the planet. And as we know, we are we're challenged right now with COVID, but clearly this whole notion of human connectivity, for love, for affection, for togetherness, for community, is my biggest learning in terms of a worldview. I wonder if I could press you on this a, a little bit, because now I'm thinking back to a conversation I had on this podcast uh, from an academic and technologist who works out of Hong Kong. And in that conversation, he reminded me that geography and cultural specificity matters when we ask what problems we should try to solve and how we should use technology to attempt to solve them. I do think that we're all connected, but there certainly seems to be a greater need to understand cultural specificity and the specific unique needs and perspectives of specific people and, and locations. Does having a global perspective change how you think about the role or design or the use of technology and the need for specificity and an inclusion of those very specific and local perspectives in the design or use of technology? Well, you know, as an undergirding, you know, this whole notion of human connection, and then, of course, you laminate on that culture, religion, spirituality, uh, economies, social construction uh, at the end of the day, the social contract, the kind of government under which we have agreed to or not to live, right? Then, you know, technology plays an instrumental role on a lubricant that brings all of that together for humanity. It was interesting that, as I said, I was a young child in Taiwan, and these were the days of Chiang Kai-shek, and Taiwan was a fairly poor country in those days, and how things have changed. You know, the interaction of that country with other countries, its leadership, for good or for ill, right, in terms of the kind of governmental construction and interaction with both its citizens and abroad, and we deal with these same sorts of issues here in the United States, and then being able to apply through research and development and innovation, certain technologies that, at least in theory, you know, cause the advancement of the state and therefore the advancement of cultures and citizens worldwide. I would say we struggle, different cultures struggle with some of the same things and some different things. That's one of my learnings as well. And I will finally say, as we continue our discussion, we are connected now globally in very intricate ways. And so a technology here in the U.S. or a technology in Germany or technology in Singapore can affect humans in other countries. We are interlinked. So we have to have that in consideration as well. I mean, this sounds like part of what would seem intuitive for a person who has and I want to highlight this, spent much of his career dedicated to global service. I guess a good baseline question is, is really, what does service mean to you? You know, I do believe there is a service ethic in us all. 
uh, sometimes it has to be teased out a little more. A lot depends on experiences that we go through as young people with our families and our friends. We're all different also, you know, and then attach a certain value to doing deeds and actions above self. Uh, I think it's important. And what I've come to learn is that the service community, whether that be the military community or a national service community or in general, a social service community that we have across this country can amplify this whole service ethic within individuals. And when you have institutions that are focused on it, and you know, I've been one of those who's been pushing for a year of national civilian service for every young American. <laughs> Why? Why? You know, because when people get together to do service above self, it changes them. First of all, it's good for the country. You know, there are issues of education and poverty and wealth and income disparity. Clearly, that service can address. We have an aged population that has certain needs that I believe the service community can address in a better way, for example, than uh, other communities and sectors. And so there's a real tangible benefit, first of all, to performing service for the community. But, you know, you grow individually. You do service above self. When you're there with people who are from different walks of life, and you've got to figure out how to work together in sometimes a very austere environment to accomplish a certain task. You know, think about COVID now and the degree to which, you know, there are people who need food across the country and the degree to which we could have service participants working together to ensure, you know, that our nation and this food security is addressed. You grow individually as a person. It's the great second order effect when you serve. I wonder if you could say a little bit more about this and, and in specific terms, maybe expand on the relationship between how you understand service and ethics. In this series and in the class I teach on ethical technology, we talk a lot about the nature of the good and ethics, broadly speaking. One of the things I try to do is I try and say we have to really understand very specifically what we mean by the good, because people can have very radically different ideas of what the good is. So and true. that is why we can have people with very different policy outlooks so and very true. different <laughs> worldviews also say that they are pursuing the good. Is service an ethic for you? And if so, how does your career in service shape your understanding very specifically of the good? Yeah, you know, the good is about sort of the deeds that you do where it's benefiting people uh, at the end of the day, other than yourself. And, you know, you wrap the good within ethics, ethical principles, moral principles that will govern your personal behavior. Uh, at the end of the day, and there is both an individual ethic, I believe this, there is uh, a collective community ethic uh, as well, you know, set of norms and protocols that emerge uh, that benefit the entire community. And we have a very different sort of system here in the United States, of course, you know, a collection of many communities under, you know, states and then the federal government. It's a sort of a fascinating system uh, that we have here. And within all of that, being able to do good, being able to improve the social and moral condition of the state, its citizens, really does beg everything from education, the kind of things that you're doing, actions and activities in terms of service, you know, thinking about economies uh, and the degree to doing well and doing good aren't oxymorons. You can do both. 
you come to a role in technology with a background and a deep understanding of the military. How does that background shape your understanding of tech? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think I want to pursue this by thinking back a bit about how nations interact, you know, and internationally, the fact that we live in a state basically of, of, and I don't want to use anarchy in a pejorative sense, but the fact that there is no third party adjudicatory authority on the part of nation states means that, you know, we use different instruments of power for protection, security, and to thrive as nations, you know, with our 190 some odd nations across uh, the world. And there are different instruments by which we do that. And the acronym we would use is the DIME, uh, Diplomatic, Informational, Military, and Economic Power. And that's what nations do, you know, and then, of course, enter into treaties and other sorts of arrangements, clearly, and that can come under the diplomatic instrument of power. So the military instrument of power is one of those four in terms of both the protection of the state, right, at the end of the day, and how it interacts with other states, uh, oftentimes that can be compellents. Again, that's where nations uh, in the past have gone to war. And technology has played a role in the preparation of the state at the end of the day. I think in terms of modern technology, I would go back to roughly the 1950s uh, and President Eisenhower, former West Point graduate and, of course, the Allied commander. And uh, when he became president, you know, fostered the ushering in of uh, technology in a big way and, you know, established the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency or DARPA. I'm sure some of your listeners have heard of DARPA. And a lot of research and development around technology emerged during that time. For those who don't know DARPA, can you say a, a word or two about what DARPA is? Yeah, it basically is an agency within the Department of Defense. And the purpose basically is, you know, doing research and development projects to really push the frontiers of technology, push the frontiers of innovation and science. And there have always been spillover effects into, you know, the civilian sector with respect to some innovations. And, you know, NASA came around at that period of time. So the military has been ensconced in technology since the inception of humankind. We were using flints, right, <laughs> in spears. And I think what we're seeing now is alongside the military, you're seeing these huge innovations happening in the commercial sector with our digital giants. And that is fairly new. You know, the exchange of technology or not is clearly a subject uh, that, you know, this country will continue to wrestle with, you know, as we continue the protection of the state. But there's been an intimate relationship between technological advancement and military readiness. You mentioned NASA. Can you give us a few more cases of, of specific technologies that we might be using in our everyday that have come out of military innovations? And, and can you talk maybe a little bit about what, what the effect is of having a kind of military-based premise guiding some of these innovations? Yeah, well, like one of the big ones is the ARPANET that came out of it, which is the internet <laughs> nowadays. And a lot of that research and development actually uh, started in, interestingly enough, within uh, government. And so, yeah, we've had these just incredible innovations. Just to expand a little bit, I'd love to hear you talk about how 
for those of us who use the internet every day, uh, it would be wonderful to know how that innovation came about. Well, you know, at the end of the day, the fact that we needed to be better at connecting in terms of information and communication. And this goes back to the late 50s and early 60s, right? In some sort of secure way as well. You know, some of our, our, our nation's most prestigious scientists at that period of time, along with some of our military leaders, you know, worked on the development of some sort of internet connectivity, some sort of connectivity. And it's amazing to think that was, my goodness, that was roughly about 50 or 60 years ago to where now we have this international internet that has emerged as a behemoth, of course, of communications and, you know, exchange of goods and services. Just fascinating. But a lot of that research, of course, came out of the government. Do you think that there's a legacy of the initial premise of military utility and innovation still embedded in the internet as we know it now? Oh boy, it has just morphed completely, I think, just in terms of, you know, just exchange of information and thoughts and ideas and innovation. It's an organism now that on its own that has emerged in ways that have greatly affected the planet and individual countries and people. It's just incredible when you think about it. You know, and I'm old enough to think back when we really had the emergence of it commercially. Heck, I remember the days when we didn't have barcodes. <laughs> I mean, and, you know, these technologies continue to march, many of them inextricably linked. This is, you know, as some of your students who are, I'm sure, Gen Zers at this point, uh, maybe some millennials, start to grapple with some of these issues that they will have to deal with, you know, from climate change to other sorts of big issues around human connectivity, artificial intelligence. You know, looking back a bit at the emergence of some of these technologies and the lessons learned in terms of how you manage these technologies for good or for ill is going to be very important, hence the importance of what you're doing, Deb. I wanted to get into some of the work that you're doing now, but before I do, you mentioned something to me in our last conversation and I couldn't let it go because you casually dropped that your mom was an English teacher and anyone who listened... <laughs> <laughs> She is, yes. <laughs> and any, any, anyone who listens to this podcast series knows I can't let the opportunity to talk about the relationship between literature and writing and language and tech go by. Yes. Do you think that your exposure and your proximity to literature and education impacted your thinking about tech specifically and your career broadly? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and <it's... laughs> yes, absolutely. Okay. If so, how? My mom had such... Well, my mom's had such a powerful both parents' influence on our lives. You know, we moved around a lot. The family unit was the core unit of consistency throughout our lives, right? Because everything around us changed except for that. My parents, my brother, my sister, and me. And so you can imagine the uh, the influence that my parents and my siblings have had and we've had on each other as well. Oh, uh, my mother, you know, a person of words. I don't curse, actually, uh, because of my mom's. There's no religious reason I don't. There's no, the reason is that my mother told me at an early age, if you have to curse, that means you do not have a grasp, an effective grasp on the English language. <laughs> <laughs> You know, she exposed us to museums and to coins and to music and all of that stuff because we're going to 
talk about technology today, but this whole notion of the intricate relationship between technology and the arts and human systems, so important to advancement of societies. And that's what my mother had done for her kids. She imbued us with a couple of things. The first was that people in general are good. And, you know, to reach out, connect, learn from others, engage. And, and we are all engagers. Appreciate value. You know, this comes with diversity of cultures. And then second, communications is important. How you communicate, how you convey, all of that. And we use technology to do that. We truncate sometimes our messages, right, at the end of the day, because it's expedient. We struggle a bit, I think, with communication in the fuller extent, because technology allows us rapid communication, but not necessarily meaningful communication. I was today years old when I learned that I don't have a grasp of the English language. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to follow up on some of the things you're saying, because one of the things that I'm noticing and very excited about is that technologies have really started to meditate and and involve the humanities. And I think there's a growing need and awareness of the need for humanistic skills and thinking. What do you think has led to that shift? Why do or why should the humanities suddenly matter? For yes, machines have advanced to a great degree. And one thing machines don't have is a soul <laughs> and feeling. <laughs> and so it is more important than ever for those of us who have studied the humanities, the social sciences, to apply basically the strength of those disciplines in working alongside machines to ensure that we are protecting principles of ethics and human connectivity and community. That's not going to come out of our machines. That's going to come with a fuller understanding of people systems and how they operate, interact, people interact, and are connected. And so a chatbot, oftentimes we don't even know when we're talking to a chatbot until At some point in time, there's that answer that we get based on the question where we say to ourselves, that's not a human. (laughs) You know what I mean? I mean, to me, this whole notion that artificial intelligence will, at the end of the day, emerge as something that is sentient and then be able to effectively interact with humanity without human beings, I just don't buy it. And this is where the humanities and social sciences are ever so important in terms of being able to chart the future of technology and its application to society. You don't know it, but I have this section of the podcast I informally title, uh, Take Your Humanities Classes Seriously, (laughs) a public service announcement. (laughs) So so thank you for (laughs) helping. I'm kidding. It's not an official segment, Uh although it might start becoming (laughs) one because uh, I... I find a way to sneak it into every single podcast. <laughs> so thank you for helping me deliver. <laughs> thank you for helping me deliver this week's PSA. My pleasure. <laughs> I wanna, so important. I want to talk a little bit about the work that you're doing now. You're currently the chief growth officer of SBG Technology Solutions. Could you say a little bit about SBG Technology Solutions? What does SBG do? We're a company, small business, been around for 15 years, started by a, a Navy veteran, good friend of mine, Carlos Del Toro. Carlos and I met through a special program called the White House Fellows Program years ago. 
And it's, it's great that we're working together now. SBG as a small business, you know, provides basically cutting edge technology services and products uh, to the federal government, uh, primarily through contracting. And oftentimes we have teaming organizations, whether they be small or small businesses that work together with us to provide those services. We do everything from modernization. Uh, for example, we've got a great contract with the Department of Veterans Affairs called Enterprise Mobile Management, where we manage over 40,000 devices, basically, uh, through a cloud-based structure. Uh, we manage satellites so that our military can communicate. We do everything from acquisition training. And we are now doing some, as of this fall, late fall, artificial intelligence training. We're really excited to bring, and we'll talk about this AI later, you know, artificial intelligence training because AI training has progressed to where you don't need to have an education in computer programming or coding now to create AI assets. So we're, we're involved in that as well. Just, it's a great company. Yeah. Yeah. One thing you didn't mention, I, I don't think I heard you mention is healthcare and your work yes. combines, as you said, this broad swath of things, including AI, cybersecurity, and healthcare. How did those things come together in your work? And there's a couple of connections that I wanted you to help me make. Why is cybersecurity at stake in healthcare? And how does AI function at that intersection? Good question. And thank you for that. SBG has two verticals, national security, that's one, and healthcare, that's the other, in terms of of the sectors that we primarily focus on. And so those two things are interlinked, as you might imagine. You know, with healthcare advances, and I, I hope we get a chance to talk about COVID later, the, the fact that data and, you know, the mountain of data that exists in healthcare can now be uh, managed in ways that improve health. And you have to be very thoughtful about that in terms of how you do that. It, whether that is through information technology systems, whether that's through improved diagnoses and prognoses, clearly now because of the onslaught of the amount of data uh, and systems, there are real opportunities for improvement in health. That, of course, intersects the national security arena because you want not only a healthy society, but also you want to be able to protect information and data at the end of the day, from those who would use it for nefarious purposes as well. What kind of what kind of nefarious purposes are we talking oh about? Oh my here? goodness. You know, everything from, you know, stealing data and using ransomware, for example, stealing data and replicating profiles, health profiles for nefarious purposes of fraud, stealing people's profiles in general, at the end of the day, all of these sorts of things, bag security structures and processes and protocols and policies to ensure the protection of our health data at the end of the day. So, you know, this is something that in terms of cyber that we deal with both in the national security arena and in healthcare. I wanted to press you on this because every once in a while, although it's happening less frequently, every once in a while, I talk about cybersecurity and I talk about the importance of protecting data and I talk about the urgent need in my view to create new laws and new structures that help enforce the protection of our data. And every once in a while, the response I get is, yeah, but I have nothing to hide. Why should it matter? Why should it matter whether somebody else has my data? Why, does, why is that important? 
And I wonder whether you know you coming from a background in cybersecurity and in particular in relationship to health data, but I think even more broadly, might be in a good position to tell us why it matters. It matters a lot. And if I can emphasize anything uh, for your listeners, the fact that your data is out there and potentially is unprotected can mean that those who would do us harm uh, can get access to that data and use it in ways that are unintended by you at the end of the day, uh, whether that is, again, such as what? One of the big ones is stealing your profile and then interacting on the internet, acting as you, taking your health information and sharing it in ways that could affect your job. There are just so many ways that your personal data and your personal information can be used for nefarious purposes. So I would enjoin everybody who is listening to take time to look at what they are sharing on the internet at the end of the day and be very thoughtful about it because. You know, there are people who can capture that data and use it for consequences that you did not intend. You know, the second is there are new tools. There is always this struggle, you know, between hackers and those who would use data for nefarious purposes and others who are trying to prevent that, you know, whether those are companies or governments or nonprofits, you know, or small community organizations. That struggle continues. And over time, in terms of technology, we are just continuing to see advances at the end of the day where it is extremely important for people just to be apprised, you know, of some of the issues that concern, you know, society as a whole and paying attention to them. Damn, I'm glad you brought this up because I used to teach American politics and public policy. And, you know, one of the issues is technology continues to advance at a rapid rate. You think about artificial intelligence. We'll be talking about that later on. And the advancement literally over the past year in terms of technology, drone technology, nanotechnology, biotechnology. And think about the slow process of public policy change. You know, that is both political and policy associated. And the change in terms of public policy, oftentimes, most of the time, does not keep up with the change in technology. And you see this gap between public policymaking and technology advancement. And so I think it's important for your students to know that that gap needs to be addressed. This comes back to society, working together, regardless of, you know, where you are in walks of life, where you are in positions of authority and leadership, uh, to be able to address these things in a, a way that's timely and, and, and purposeful and effective. So folks, next time you are on Facebook and... Your Facebook feed has a quiz that pops up that says, take this quiz to discover which Harry Potter character is your social security oh, no. number. <laughs> don't take the quiz. Don't, don't take the quiz. <laughs> no quizzes. <laughs> but, but this is a serious question. You know, coming from a background in policy yeah. and coming from a background uh, where you are aware of these kinds of issues, what kinds of policies would you propose? First of all, you've got to make sure you have the institutional arrangements to consider what the issue issues are in terms of making policy. Now, in America, you know, we've got federalism. We have American federalism. It's a division of power and authority between state governments and the federal government. Pure American federalism focuses on states and the federal government. Each of those uh, oftentimes spheres of influence and authority endemic to it as a unit of government. For example, you know, military policy and the security of the nation is the province of 
requirements of the federal government. As we all know, whether it's driver's license or other issues of water, et cetera, public utilities are often in charge of states. And so uh, technology is driven through a lot you know, of these systems and processes. So you have to have very robust and healthy institutions at the end of the day that are able to consider, first of all, you know, what's in the best interest uh, of citizens, and then being able to make timely policy decisions to address some of the ill effects of technology. Perfect example, drone tech. You know, as we all know, drone technology, oh my goodness, what a wonder it can be. Let me give an example to move medical supply to the far reaches of a community that's hard to get to somewhere in the world. You know, the fact that you can put some, you know, medical supplies on a drone and fly those in, right? Boy, that's great. Uh, at the same time, we don't want drones fly, flying around our aircraft. And so we have to think very judiciously about the kinds of policies that will both enhance a technology and limit it in certain cases where it could be used for purposes that are detrimental, basically, to our mm -hmm. citizens. Mm -hmm. you're, you're making a very strong case here that intimate decisions about technology are so large. In fact, most of the problems that we're facing right now are so large and complex that there can't just be one kind of person or one kind of profession or one kind of methodology governing this, that, that issues of, of tech security are also issues of policy, which are also humanistic questions. Take, for example, COVID-19. This issue is a healthcare issue, but it is also, as you pointed out, a cybersecurity issue. And it's also a social issue. It's also a cultural issue. It's a psychological issue. And, and these problems become so large and complex that there really needs to be a very robust and diverse group of people who are tackling them and coming together to take them on. And of course, we can't talk about healthcare right now without talking about COVID-19 in the moment that we're in. You've written that, and I'm, I'm quoting you here, COVID-19 challenges us to think about improving the design, development, and deployment of technologies to successfully combat the virus, eventually win, and return to some sense of normalcy. So which technologies in particular do you think are important for us to think about in this moment and why? Let me start off by saying, this is my personal conviction, that we are not going back to normalcy like we knew it before. That's not going to happen. Mm -hmm. Ever? No. Uh, and one of the reasons is certain sectors of society will be transformed and never look back. I'm sure your audience is seeing that now. Perfect example, of course, is the degree to which food and food security and just food in terms of ordering and eating and the degree to which we use it as a way to collectively come together. That's being transformed. Travel will be transformed. I call it the new new. Automation is happening in certain sectors now because of COVID. And as a result, those sectors will be transformed and they won't look back. So this time in 2021, won't look the same as, you know, the time we had in February of 2020. It's just not going to happen. Innovation will continue and certain technologies will continue to march more rapidly as a part of COVID. Genetics is a perfect example. The degree to which we can map, we can use the genome and potentially, this is where AI comes in, potentially predict when an individual, because I haven't had COVID, I, I, I'm very lucky, the degree to which I have my symptoms, 
Who knows at the end of the day? Who knows for any of us that are listening in how this will affect us? Well, new technologies can help with that. The fact that you can marry up genetics with artificial intelligence and potentially predict if someone eventually would require intubation could help you triage in the professional medical professional community earlier. If you knew that person early on, because of these technologies, would be more susceptible to intubation in the future. You would potentially have different therapeutics that you could apply uh, as a result. That, you know, there's a lot of innovation going on right now in the rooms of houses and condos and apartments. A lot of innovation in many different ways. You know, everything from entertainment to being able to connect or business, that innovation will continue. And what it does mean is we will have a new environment this time next year. So are you optimistic? Are you excited? Are you nervous? Are you nostalgic? You know, we need to be a bit nostalgic about the fact that we've been through a pandemic before and we need to have some lessons learned there. And so I think nostalgia in the way of looking back to see if there's some lessons that we can take over these next few years, because literally we're just dealing with this, you know, less than a year. Think about that. It feels like forever, but it's less than a year. And, you know, as pandemics unfold, you know, there are different phases in terms of where human beings and the species can get back to some degree of normalcy, whatever that looks like. But I will say innovation continues. And out of this, certain sectors will emerge and proliferate. Other sectors will not do so well. Maybe we could focus a little bit on AI and the relationship of AI to some of the changes that you're you're seeing. You mentioned automation, but I think that we can think of AI here much more expansively in the context of our healthcare. Where do you see AI fitting into healthcare, particularly right now? I'm just going to focus on three things. That action can be classification. And I want you to think, the audience to think of basically 100 pictures of animals. And of those pictures, there are cats among those pictures. And the degree, basically, to which a human being takes those 100 pictures and says, nope, that's a dog. Nope, that's a donkey. Ah, that's a cat. That's a cat. And that's great for 100 pictures. Well, how about a 1,000 pictures? And there are different kinds of cats in there. How about a million pictures? Well, first of all, now it's daunting for a human being to take all of that data and pick out which of those pictures is a cat. One of the things AI can do is rapid classification at high degrees of accuracy if you have enough data. You know, if you only had seven pictures, well, AI is not that great. Well, if you've got a hundred million pictures, boy, can it move quickly in terms of ingesting that data and make identification. And it continues to get better and better and better the more data it has. Classification is one. You can see classification of COVID or something else, right? Uh, when you are taking x-rays or you're taking a look at uh, the human body uh, in terms of determining certain sorts of diseases and the degree to which AI can more quickly classify a disease and then get into the second part of what AI can do. Predict the degree to which artificial intelligence can make predictions based on data is also a very powerful elixir of the technology. Based on the data that you see in terms of a health issue, what are the best predictions for a therapeutic based on that person's genetic makeup, 
based on that person's history, based on the person's activities, all those sorts of things, AI can help with prediction. Finally, back-end automation at the end of the day, making systems faster, more accurate, much more powerful in their ability to arrive at actions and activities. And undergirding all of this, Deb, is data. Data, data, data. We're swimming in it. It's all over our cell phones. It's in our iPads. It's on the cloud. It's in our desktops. It's on our laptops. It's all over the place. So how can we harness the power of that data to make humanity better at the end of the day? AI can help with that. You know, maybe we can back up for a second because you've also written that, and, and again, I'm quoting you here, many professionals in the commercial and government sectors still do not have a firm grasp of AI's capabilities, potential advantages, much less its shortcomings over promises, complex explanations, unwieldy processes, and theoretical applications have thwarted healthcare sector leadership and innovators in their attempt to fully exploit AI's powerful applications and then practically and effectively achieve breakthroughs to address real world challenges, problems, and opportunities. Opportunities. That's the quote. Why do you think that AI is such a challenging concept to understand? What makes it difficult to grasp? Is it just that its applications and consequences are so vast and immense? Or is there something about AI that makes it conceptually challenging in and of itself? Yeah, we have this conceptual notion of it. Let me go back to the cloud again, right? Cloud-based technology. Hey, you know what? I knew some really smart people that said, hey, Rob, does that mean, is that something in the sky, in satellites, you know, is that why it's called the cloud? We have these sort of conceptual notions of a, a technology that can have lingering effects to what we believe is the power of its use for good or for ill. And of course, you know, AI, people immediately think, and you know, smart people, people in positions of authority, people immediately think oftentimes of the Terminator. Isn't it true? If you say AI, how many times do people bring up, oh, the Terminator? And that's their concept. So we need to sort of demystify what artificial intelligence is, first of all, and then familiarize on how it can be applied. So, you know, in my view, there's been such an advancement, basically, of artificial intelligence that it is more accessible now to people, uh, regardless of sector. Of course, it used to be the charge and province of data scientists. Things are changing. This gets back to what I talked about earlier of the use of no code, you know, plug in and play based AI to be able to create it at the end of the day. Some simplification is happening over time that will allow greater access to understanding it, deploying it, and then reaping the benefits from it. Mm -hmm. You brought up two two points that I really love to think about and talk about. The first is, of course, you mentioned the Terminator, which gives, I think, a sense of how strongly the fictions and the imaginative cultural products that, that we know actually determine how we think of and how we understand actual technologies as they emerge. And the second point you brought up when you were talking about the cloud is the way in which metaphors shape our understanding of products and our understanding of technologies very specifically. Obviously, the word cloud to describe these non-localized sets of uh, interacting data is not actually existing in a cloud. That's a metaphor that we're using to describe and to allow people to conceptualize 
the working of, of that product. Are there specific metaphors that you find or specific fictions that you find govern our understanding of data more effectively than others? Are there ones that you think are very confusing? I guess the larger question is how do these metaphors and how do these fictions both govern and expand upon it and maybe even limit or block our ability to understand AI specifically and technology broadly? We have the same problem with the understanding human and human culture. And it, it harks back to where we started in terms of my journeys where I've lived. Deb, as you know, you know, teaching English, as my mother, the English teacher knows, words mean something. They're powerful. And a word can then wrap a concept in a way that either ignites or limits opportunities in the future. So we, we have to be mindful of that. And so what I would tell basically our audience is, don't be afraid of the concept. Learn more about it and see how you can use it basically to, to, to better what you're doing. Going back to your thinking about AI, you mentioned three main advantages that AI offers or provides, classification, prediction, and automation. Of course, I can see those as tremendous advantages, but perhaps the pessimist that I am, I also see that those three things in particular, and then AI broadly, has some really negative unintended consequences, and that there there are some significant shortcomings that might emerge in our conceptual understanding or our ability to pursue a just and fair and equitable society with an automated form of classification, prediction, and automation. What do you see as some of the shortcomings of AI in classification, prediction, and automation, or more broadly? Yeah, it doesn't have a soul. At the end of the day, this whole notion of this uh, artificial intelligence network that is sentient and is able to ingest feeling and emotion, and let's get back to principles of morality and ethics. Guess what? Not happening. That's where humans will continue to play a very critical role in harnessing technologies, regardless of whether it's AI, into improving the social plight, basically, of communities, organizations, and societies at the end of the day. It's not happening. Now, what that means is that we shouldn't be thinking about AI as humans working alongside it with artificial intelligence being the sort of the prime force. Humanity will continue to do that. We need to be very thoughtful about how we employ it. This gets exactly to this notion of morality and ethics and guiding principles for the use of AI. There was a really interesting article. Uh, I want to say it was, in, I think it was the New York Times, that used cameras in Bryant Park as an experiment and was able to take that data, that visual data from those cameras, create a simple sort of AI program. And guess what? You could identify who the people were who were walking in Bryant Park. Not everybody, clearly. But, you know, if they had pictures on Facebook, if they had written articles with their pictures, if they were walking through Bryant Park in New York, guess what? Certainly the AI had the power to identify some of those people. Uh, where's the line? What's the degree to not only do you want your government, but other people to be able to do those sorts of things? These are critical questions of ethics in terms of what ought society do. A while back, we were emailing back and forth, and you brought up the most recent AI advancement in the release of the AI text generator GPT-3 by OpenAI and its potential commercial use, which you call both evolutionary and disconcerting. 
What is GPT-3? What does it have the potential to do? And why do you find this form of AI in particular disconcerting? GPT-3, basically, if you look at these natural language processors, it was developed, programmed, basically developed by OpenAI. It is the third iteration at GPT-3 at the end of the day. It has learned and ingested uh, 175 billion parameters and this is uh, basically what we call an autoregressive language model. And as a result of it, you know, you can basically prompt it with some questions. And it is so wicked fast at being able to return what it is that you're asking it to do at the end of the day. And it doesn't need that much data from you to do it because it's ingested all of this data uh, to be able to answer what it is that you want it to do very quickly and somewhat accurately. You know, one of the interesting aspects of GPT-3 and AI in general is if it's ingesting information, not all information, of course, as we know, is either exact or true or fact. So if you're ingesting all of that information, certainly you can provide the wrong response as well as the right response. Now, this begs a much higher order question. What's the degree to which we want machines to be perfectly exact? Humans aren't, right? I mean, and so it does beg the normative again. Ought machines, ought artificial intelligence achieve this notion of perfection? Ought human beings work on this kind of technology to achieve that? It's a big question. We certainly aren't perfect. <laughs> and I'm not sure why we would want perfect machine. Perfection, not sure that's in, in the cards. Not sure it should be. At one point, access and use of AI was restricted to a sort of digital elite, but that's no longer the case. The barriers to entry have typically been very high. The technologies have been expensive. That's one barrier. And they've also been challenging to create, but, but this is starting to change. How do you think about the democratization of AI? And can we get to a point where AI is truly democratized? Do we want AI to be truly democratized? What would the advantages and the consequences and the ethical implications of that kind of democratization be? Yeah, currently, you know, AI is the charge of oftentimes big digital giants and companies that can afford basically to go through the process of ideation through deployment. And that can be many, many, many millions of dollars to be able to do before, right? You had to have data scientists, highly educated, highly trained, of course, high income, who would be deployed uh, to work on developing these AI models, put them into some sort of platform and create it, and then be able to deploy it, run it, learn from it, and then start again. And so there have been some big changes. The advancement, basically in more automated end-to-end -end frameworks that don't require that uh, very high human capital every step of the way. That's the first. And as a result, you know, whether you're an analyst or, you know, someone who really wants to learn basically how to create AI, it's much more available. You know, the second is sort of just general access by dint of being able to use AI networks in lieu of having to know how to code and program. We're, we're seeing that as well. And then, quite frankly, the access to data sets. There's something called transfer learning that your audience should know about. And it is that there are pre-packaged data sets that can go into artificial intelligence frameworks. So much more quickly can you bring your own data 
basically based on a prepackaged data set, you know, included them in that data set and be able to classify or make more predictions, et cetera, more accurate predictions and faster predictions. It's called transfer learning. You know, based on those three things, the cost coming down, uh, simpler to use, right, and access to data. Well, that opens up a state of play for our nonprofits, some other medical institutions, clearly small businesses. You are seeing the advancement by some of the digital giants in offering tools, automated tools that are available to, to others to be able to use. And so, yes, there, I think this we're undergoing what I would call a democratization, this availability and access at the end of the day and freedom to be able uh, to use. Now, the question is, how do you have safeguards? on the access to such a powerful technology. We come back to public policy once again, and the degree to which our, you know, our policy organizations ensure that we've got the rules and protocols and procedures to protect basically privacy, to ensure that certain of these technologies are not used and exploited for nefarious reasons. This is where policy plays a premier role. And you know what I would say, Deb? Probably the emergence of some new communities of collaboration. There are new actors with respect to, you know, being able to make decisions on the use of data. And my guess is we'll see the emergence of that too. Do do we have the equipment? Do we have the infrastructure to create effective policy and enforce effective policy at this point? Or are we going to need to see the rise of new infrastructure, new governmental organizations, new forms of policy collaborations that will effectively have the equipment and and the means and the enforcement capability that we need. This is the importance of what you're doing. It really starts with the education of a new generation who needs to consider these things and move into eventually positions of leadership, whether that's in government, whether that's in innovation and technology, whether that's in our nonprofit communities and be able to both harness basically the power of those institutions and change them in ways to make them more effective in being able to address some of these issues. Technology continues to advance at a rapid pace. What I am excited about is our new generations, our Gen Zers, our millennials who are starting to take positions of leadership at the end of the day, who are much more comfortable with these sorts of technologies and how they change and being able to think about from a normative standpoint what ought to be and not to be. I mean, this is a very interesting infrastructural question as well. One of the templates and one of the basic premises of technological innovation is that it is fast. That's one of the reasons why it has been so effective. And it's also one of the reasons why it has stayed apart from government. And of course, one of the basic premises of government is that it is slow. (laughs) And there are good reasons for the slowness of that machinery as well. You know, if I could say one more thing about that, having been in government before, in an administration, people talk about the slowness of government. Maybe it is slower. One of the reasons is fairness, to be fair. And you want a government for its society to be fair. You want your mail delivered, whether you're living, you know, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, or out in Rifle, Colorado, which, you know, is more rural, regardless of where you are in the United States. And those sorts of services in terms of fairness, they may not be fast at the end of the day, and they may not be as efficient, 
you know, as some other sectors, but fairness matters. And so we just have to be very thoughtful about, you know, how we can balance this notion of fairness with the speed of technology. I agree. And, and I also think that, you know, tech moves quickly and there's good reasons for that. But the metaphors that we use there matter. The metaphor move fast and break things has had some pretty tremendously negative consequences, particularly in the realm of equity. What if instead the metaphor was, you know, move slow and build things? And, and that matters. You know, I would love to see a point where the slowness of government and its principles of equity converges somehow with the quickness of technology. I think these industries can really learn from one another. Um, and hopefully the kinds of oversight that you're looking at can, can be a good meeting point where people from both sectors come together, teaching one another not only about the ethics of technology and policy, but also questions about process and, and how to negotiate process, which I think are so important. You're exactly right. Let me put in a pitch for national service and why it's important with respect to that. If we have young people serving alongside each other, going off to different sectors afterwards, serving for about a year or so, building trust relationships among themselves, understanding basically that future connection is going to be important to address these sort of issues. I, I believe the civilian national service uh, sector can help with exactly what you just talked about. And you've got to create sort of this fabric of trust at the end of the day to be able to deal with these very tough problems uh, and opportunities at the end of the day that technology will bring. I want to close with a few questions that bring us back to the ethical side of things. Your life is so compelling to me. And one of the reasons I was so excited to talk to you was that it seems like your life is so drawn together and compelled by service. Many listeners of this podcast are current students, humanists, and technologists who are thinking about how they want to use their education for good. What advice would you have for them? You can do good and do well. Don't think that those are two separate things. And what I'm saying is doing well is, you know, having a life that is uh, comfortable, where you can, you know, afford education for your children, your future kids, that you can connect in great communities, and you can do good. You also serve as an advisor to several technology startups. What makes you want to advise these tech startups? What do you look for when you are thinking about uh, who you want to advise, where you want to spend your time? I look for... First of all, the theory of change. What is it that this organization is trying to change, first of all, for the betterment of society? And then I will tell you, leadership matters. I mean, the team, you know, looking at who that team is, that they're really sort of dedicated to the mission at hand uh, in terms of making people's lives better, the ability to innovate, the ability, of course, to take many different notes. You're going to get 100 or 200 notes before you get a yes, <laughs> you know, just in terms of a startup, there's no doubt about that. And just stick to itiveness, but continue to be authentic every step of the way. You know, you mentioned specifically people who are focused on the mission at hand and you, you emphasized authenticity. And I think that even for the most authentic, earnest and mission driven people, one of the challenges for startups, particularly as they grow, is mission drift. I really believe that most folks starting companies have vision and want to do good and make change for the good. But that what I see happen is that these good folks who have missions and are very earnestly and authentically committed to them, sometimes in the process, have that process get in the way of the well-intentioned idea 
and the mission and the authenticity and the earnestness. How do you guide the entrepreneurs that you advise? And what advice would you give to the next generation of entrepreneurs, particularly those who have an ethical vision for their idea as they move from idea and execution? How do you hold on to that mission when the forces and the enticements of drifting from it sometimes become extraordinarily powerful? Good question. Because as we know, some of the biggest companies now started off in one place and ended up in another. And I do like to tell those that I do advise you more often than not will end up in a place where you didn't necessarily start. But that sort of core mission should should be there. There will be enticements along the way to drift to do other things. What I think some in your audience who decide to be entrepreneurs will find is a bunch of new shiny objects along the way. And they can be huge distractors, but you've got to keep focus basically on your core mission, the purpose of why you started it in the first place. It's not to say that you need to be adaptive and flexible. You do. But there's a reason that you started with an idea and that you want to see it through uh, to fruition. And so uh, eliminate the distractors, listen to your inner voice and be as authentic and ethical as you can along the way because there will be challenges to both but keep your true north in terms of your ethics and your authenticity thank you rob you bet thank you deb really enjoyed it